Um, we can start a new sermon series today entitled The Ten Commandments, What God Expects of Everyday People. So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 and be ready. But can we just go to the Lord and pray first? Uh, our congregation is experiencing just significant loss. We have three funerals just boom, boom, boom right here together. Last week we buried Benny Bowles, just a great man. Uh, Benny and Kay joined our church in 1976. Uh, Benny's been a deacon. Benny was the chairman of the personnel committee that hired me when I was 19 to be your youth and music minister uh, when you were all babies. Uh, so that's amazing to me. I, I owe a lot to Benny Bowles. Um, uh, Kenny Milam, Kelly and uh, uh, Amy Oliver's father uh, also died tragically in an accident at work this week. Uh, just horrible accident. Uh, praying especially for that family. That funeral's tomorrow, as well as Chris Gregory, who died. Uh, many of you know Chris. I think he's 11 o'clock dude, uh, usually in this service. Um, Chris is dear to me. Now, I love this church. I love all of you. I love all of you the same. You're all my kids. I know all of that, but uh, Chris was important to me. I started picking him up in the church band to be in the youth group when he was 10 years old. He wasn't old enough to be in the youth group, but we didn't really have a lot in the youth group, um, so I wasn't choosy. <laughs> So I picked him up. Once he started coming, he never missed a Wednesday. Uh, there are definitely Wednesdays I wish he had a missed. Uh, he was a wild kid. Um, I've prayed more for that man than probably anybody in my life. And uh, to, to preach this funeral is just unthinkable for me. And ordinarily as a pastor, I'm pretty good at taking my emotions and setting them aside because I have to. I just have to keep talking. I have to preach the funeral comfort the family, but this one's just hard, so just, just, just pray for me, pray for me. Um, he's younger, and younger than I am. Again, I'm not supposed to have to preach a funeral of, a, of someone uh, with so much life yet to live. Last words, Chris spoke to me. I walked in to see him, well, what day it was, Friday or so, and Chris opened one eye and said, uh, Wade sure has growed. <laughs> Wade's my son. Wade sure has growed. Um, that's Chris's way of he and I saying, how did we become old men? <laughs> but, but we became old men together. Uh, I will miss him. Uh, so uh, let's go to the Lord and let's pray together. Lord God, all of the things that we celebrate in this room, all of these promises that we declare they're all true. The promise of heaven, the glory of the gospel, the confidence that we will see your face in the land of the living, Lord, all of it's true. Lord, when we must bury one another, Lord, we don't do it without the hope of the gospel and the assurance of your grace and mercy in the life to come, but Lord, this life is just so sweet, and this old world is just so beautiful. And the life we share together in this house as your family, Lord, it's just precious. And we are learning to love each other so much. God, we know what death is for us and for one another, Lord, but it is still sometimes just so hard to say goodbye. Will you bless all of these families? Lord, will you be with the Bowles family 
those children and grandchildren. Will you be with Kenny Milam's family? Lord, will you be with Andrew and Kelly especially? Amy, as she tries to say words for her daddy tomorrow, Lord, will you just bless that family with all the grace they need? Lord, be with Rose and Chaz and Carrie and all of Chris's children and grandchildren and all of us, Lord, tomorrow who will say goodbye to that good man. Lord, we had prayed for miracles multiple times in his life, Lord. You certainly gave him his life back, and we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you, Lord, now for the knowledge of where he is and the end to his suffering. But, Lord, now I just pray that you would give us the ability, Lord, to uh, find a voice to give you thanks and praise, even through tears. Lord, you have called us to laugh with those who laugh and cry with those who cry. So we thank you, Lord, in this family, in this church, Lord, we laugh so much cry together as well. Thank you, Lord, for all the laughter and all the tears we can share in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you all. Now I've messed my, I, I wear one contact, y'all. I mean, I'm, an old, I'm falling apart. And so now my one contact's floating around on my eyeball and I got to read. Uh, so it's tough. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. This is the Ten Commandments. Let's, uh, let, let, let's jump right in. So I went to lunch at Taco Bell a while back because that's, you know, what, what, what you do. That's what God's people do. And so uh, anyway, I walked in as I, as I often do. Like I got gift cards like out the wazoo. So I'm walking up to the counter and there's a, a lady, an employee behind the counter. I, I, I thought I'd seen her before, but she must, uh, all I can think is she was new. All right. So I walk up and I said, uh, she said, can I take your order, please? And I said, yes, I would like a, a nacho supreme and a medium drink. And she looked back at me, just scrapped me, and she said, nacho supreme, is that some kind of salad? I said, nacho supreme. You know, I just said it again in case you didn't hear me. Nacho supreme. And she said, is that some kind of salad? She said it again. Is that a salad? Now, can I just... Yeah, I'm, I'm like a taco, like I have a PhD in Taco Bell. Do they have salads? I mean, did anybody go to Taco Bell for the salad? You know? So she says, is that some kind of salad? I'm like, no, no, nacho supreme. It's nachos. And she said, it's nachos? I said, it, it's, it's not. You know, it's just like, oh, I, I just wanted to say, you know, girl, look behind, like there's a menu the size of a billboard behind her, like, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it's there. And she's, she's an employee at Taco Bell. Like, she, she just ought to know that Nacho Supreme is nachos. Uh, I mean, you know? And the same way I look at her with that kind of bewilderment, like, how can you not know, you know, how can you not be an expert in your own menu? That's how the world outside often looks at us in the church. Because they look at us and, and they sort of watch our lives and they pay attention to us. And although they may not believe what we believe, they have some sense of what it is we say we believe. And they sort of watch to see if we're actually going to live up to it. And in the same way that, that you just sort of don't really, I mean, it's just astonishing. You can have a Taco Bell employee that doesn't really know her own menu. I mean, doesn't know that nachos are nachos. You understand? Like, that's the same way that people look at us when we don't seem to ever measure up to the very things that are in this Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, we carry it as if we might read it, but the world must wonder sometimes if we ever do. We don't seem to know the basics of our faith and the basics of what God requires of us as ordinary people. 
So I just want to call you back. If you want to talk about basics, surely we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And so if we're going to talk about the Ten Commandments, let's take some time and really consider what God expects of everyday people. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17 is where you'll find the Ten Commandments. Now, this is going to be my preaching text for the next number of weeks. So you're going to hear Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for a while. So how many of you, y'all look at me, how many of you will make a commitment to try to memorize, because I'm going to try to memorize it, I do not have it memorized, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. We're going to read it over and over and over. How many of you will give it a shot? You'll try to memorize it. Yeah, yeah. Some of you raise your hands. Others of you won't make eye contact. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation every week, and I'm going to try to begin more and more reading lessons, just reciting it more. So you might try to memorize it out of the New Living Translation so I don't mess you up when we're saying it together. Now, there's a lot. This is 17 verses. You were thinking 10 commandments. I think I already know those. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. I got it. But there's some fine print you know, in between them. And there's actually a little bit more. It's like most of a page in my Bible. So that's why I made you raise your hand before I let you look at it. Um, 1 to 17. These are the Ten Commandments. This is how we find it in the book of Exodus. And this is where we'll be for a number of weeks. Let's learn to let our lives be shaped by God's word. Let's start with verse 1. Exodus chapter 20. These are the Ten Commandments. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. It's generational. I love that. Verse 7. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God. On that day, no one in your household may do any work. This includes you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, your livestock, and any foreigners living among you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. But on the seventh day... He rested. That's why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. Honor your father and mother. Then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. That's 10. That's the 10. Look at them closely. If you pay attention, you'll notice that these 10 commandments are all, I would say they're relational. 
the relational. In, in other words, the only way to keep them, the only way to break them is in the context of relationship. It, it all has to do with your relationship with God and your relationship with other people. Now, when I say that, you'll notice what others have noticed uh, since the beginning, that the Ten Commandments kind of break down into two parts, or what traditionally is, is, is called two tables. Two tables. There's the first table of, of the commandments and the second table of the commandments. The first table is the first four commandments, and if you notice, those all pertain to one particular relationship, and which relationship is that? That's with God, right. It's with God. The first four commandments all govern your relationship with the Lord. Now, the last six, the final six commandments, they are different in the sense that they all govern your relationship with other people. Absolutely, other people. So you'll notice that these are all relational and that they have to do with your relationship with God and your relationship with people. The only way to keep them, the only way to break them is in relationship with uh, with, with others. You'll also notice that for the most part, honestly, these are kind of minimal expectations. Very, very minimal. I mean, when we're talking about relationships with other people and we are at the level of don't kill them, that's basic. That's very, very basic. So what you need to understand is that these are God's commandments for every person on the planet. This is basic. These are minimal expectations. Don't kill people. Don't steal from people. You understand? It's just basic. So we're not talking about if you want to live a particularly saintly life. We're not talking about if you want to do something you know, heroic and be some sort of you know, religious you know, guru. We're not talking about that at all. This is just what it takes to be a human being on this planet. They are universal, and they are God's commandments for every single person on the planet. There's nothing extraordinary, nothing exclusionary. This is just the basic moral guidelines for being a human being. Do you see that? Do you understand that? It's minimal expectations. The thing is, as a pastor, but probably you too, I've noticed that there are a whole lot of people who make a really big deal out of the Ten Commandments and I'm about to make a big deal out of them. I'm going to preach them for, for more weeks than you're going to want to keep up. We're going to talk about the Ten Commandments. But at the same time, I'm not going to make of the Ten Commandments what some people make of the Ten Commandments. Like, have you ever asked anybody, like, about their salvation? Like, have you ever said, you know, listen, brother, if you died tonight, are, are, do you know that you'd spend eternity in heaven? You know, I, I'll ask somebody that question. And I can't tell you how many times somebody will say, well, listen, you know, I live by the Ten Commandments. I live by the Ten Commandments. People love to say that. I live by the Ten Commandments. My faith is simple. I just sort of live by the Ten Commandments. In other words, people sort of act as if the Ten Commandments are some sort of plan of salvation. And they're not. I said that there are basic moral guidelines for every person on the planet, but this is not a plan of salvation. You don't get saved by living by the Ten Commandments because, first off, can I break it to you? You can't. You're not going to live by the Ten Commandments. You're thinking, well, I don't think I've stolen from anybody. Well, we're going to spend some time today on commandment number one. And I have a feeling by the end of today, you're going to have to confess that you don't even follow number one. I mean, so... That's the main reason why it's good news that the Ten Commandments are not a plan of salvation. The other part that you need to understand is that in the Old Testament context, there isn't really any sort of 
bracket around these 10. There's over 600 laws in the Old Testament. Did you hear me? Over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. And, and we like to make a big deal about these 10 because these 10 do seem to be the most universal for every person on the planet. But the Bible doesn't make a bigger deal out of these 10. I mean, it just doesn't. The law is the law, and the law has over 600 commandments, and this is just 10 of them. So before you sort of you know, say that you want the deal where all you got to do is keep the commandments, I'm telling you, you don't want that deal. You, you don't want that deal. You cannot save yourself by living by the commandments. So understand, if they're not a plan of salvation, then what are they? What are they? Well, historically, notice what it says. I'm the Lord your God. Verse 2, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Now, what's going on? Moses is up on the mountain, right? He's literally just brought the children of Israel out of slavery. They're a nation, but they're not really yet a nation. They are still just like barely freed slaves who are now going to have to govern themselves. They've never had government. They've just always had Pharaoh. They've had their slave masters. They've never been a people. They've never been a nation. They got no constitution, no leaders. I mean, they don't have any sort of government. So, <clears throat> so in the very beginning, if you'll notice, these commandments are given to Moses for the people in order to give them rules to live by. These are rules to live by. It's, it's the beginning of a government for a nation that has no government, no guidelines whatsoever. So in the most historical context, these are moral guidelines, the beginning of you know, government for a nation that has no rules whatsoever. They're just barely freed slaves. Not a plan of salvation at all. So what does it do? What does it actually do? Well, according to the word of God, according to what Paul says in the New Testament and elsewhere, the Ten Commandments are not given as a way of salvation, but they're given as a way of defining sin. This will show you what sin is. This shows you pretty much not so much how you're going to get saved, but how you're going to know you need to be saved. Because you're going to find out what a sinner you are. That's what I say. When you say, I'm going to live by the Ten Commandments, oh, can I just sit back and watch you for 20 minutes? Because you can't. You can't. You overestimate your own goodness if you think you can. And this is what the law does. This is what the commandments do. The commandments reveal to you your sin so that you know that you need a way of salvation, so that you know you're gonna need a savior because you cannot save yourself by being a good person, and the Ten Commandments are not gonna help you be a good person. They're gonna show you your sin, absolutely show you your sin. But now with that, they're gonna show you your sin. If they define sin, that means they also define obedience. So it's not just that you're going to learn how to sin, you're going to learn how to obey. The Ten Commandments describe the boundaries of obedience. And so, in the Old Testament context, and then even moving forward, everyday obedience becomes a sign of belonging to God. It's not how you get saved, but when you're saved, when you belong to God, your life's going to display obedience to the Lord. You're not going to walk in his ways perfectly, but your heart will desire to walk in his ways. That's what Jesus does for you. You see that? So that's why the world looks at us and wonders why in the world we preach all this stuff that we don't obey. We preach all this stuff that we don't practice. We, we, we love to stand back and judge the world for its sins, but we never really have an appetite for being serious about the sins we actually commit. 
Understand? So that's why they look at us and they want to see obedience. They expect us to live up to the very Bible that we carry into church with us. You see that? So what we're learning is what sin is, but also what obedience requires. And that obedience is one of the signs that we belong to God. Next, the Ten Commandments show us how to love God and how to love people. Again, basic expectations, we could say, start with don't kill them. Don't lie to them, understand? Don't steal from them. Don't look at what they have and wish it were yours. It's a way of helping us understand how to love God first and then how to love other people. Now, some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, I don't need help loving people. Love is my nature. I've just got the biggest heart, and I just love people. I just love people. I just want to be with people. I just, I love my children. And, and I know you're a good lady. You're a good man. I know you're good neighbors. I would want all of you as my neighbors. When I say that, it probably helps that I don't live next to any of you people. I can not imagine what kind of neighbors you are, but I think you're good people. And, and that's what I'm saying. You're all good people. I, I, I expect that you are. But at the very same time, although we, we want to love people, we want to be good people, we want to be good neighbors, you really just can't trust your instincts. You, you think you're a kind person, but you really don't know what it is to be on the other side of you. You really don't have this bottomless you know, fountain of, of goodness and kindness and love that, that you think you do. You can't trust your own instincts, and you can't for imagine pretend that you are perfect in the way that you love people. You need help. And the Ten Commandments show us how to love God and how to love people. You need help. I'll give you an example. I'm old enough to remember when nobody wore seatbelts in cars. Nobody. It wasn't a law. Now, they did pass a law first that said cars had to have seatbelts. What did we do with them? We tucked them under the seats to get them out of the way. Because, you know, I don't want to sit on a seatbelt. And it never crossed our minds to wear them. Nerds wore them. You know, nerds, I mean, I, don't, I didn't know anybody who wore a seatbelt. You just didn't. Now, that doesn't mean that we were crazy. We were safe. I, I, I didn't ride with you, but I can tell you this one thing. When you were in the car with your mama and your mama hit the brakes, what did she do? Yeah, what did she do? She put her arm over and held you on the, on the seat. See, that's what I mean. We love each other. We love people, and your mama loved you. And that's why when she hit the brake, she put her hand out. It was automatic. Mamas don't have to be taught that. It's in them. You know, they just did that. But now let me ask you, how much good would that do? Like that. Like if it's an actual accident, you know, an actual accident, you know, but, and, but your mama put her hand over your chest. I mean, what, what's that help? You and your mama both going to go through the windshield. You know, that was useless. Now, she loved you, but that was useless. You know, back in our day, like when we were going on vacation, I was going to say vacation. We didn't do vacation, did we, Dad? Yeah, Don Harris. When I say vacation, I mean like we went to Shaker Town. <laughs> True story. But on the way, understand, like if we were going somewhere on a family trip, my sister and I, we laid up in the back window. Like we laid up in there. Anybody else ever lay in the back window? Yeah. What, your parents didn't love you? Of course parents loved us, but they didn't think anything about just letting you roll around in the whole car. I mean, now when I was born at Warren County Hospital up on Hospital Hill, and my mama, you know, gave me birth and then, you know, left the hospital with me, 
Did the hospital stand back and make sure they had a, you know, a, a government approved infant car seat for me? No. They pitched me in the back of the car and just, you know, let me roll around. I mean, that's just what we did. Babies just rattled around in cars. That's what we did. Now, did parents love their children in the 70s and the 80s? Absolutely. They loved their kids, but they needed some laws. They needed some laws so that they would know how to love their children more perfectly, love their children and protect them in ways that really they wanted to do, but they just really didn't have that knowledge. You, you can't trust your instincts. Now, you can't have a baby. You can't leave a hospital with a baby until they come out and see that you have a government-approved you know, infant car seat facing in the rear and belted in, you know, in such a way that passes inspection. Isn't that amazing? Because those are pretty new laws. Like, I mean, that's in my lifetime, but, but this is what I'm saying. Yeah, we love each other. We say we love God, but we need some help. We need some boundaries. We need to really be shown exactly where love dwells and, and where perfect love dwells and how it is that we can learn how to love God and love other people. The Ten Commandments sort of draw those lines for us. You with me? Understand what I'm saying? So let's jump into them quickly. Uh, let, let me just talk about the first three today, and we'll come back to number four next week. We'll start taking them one at a time after today. Uh, number one, commandment number one, y'all ready? I am the Lord your God. You must not have any other God but me. That's command number one. I am the Lord your God. You must not have any other God but me. If you know anything at all about Jewish Christian faith, just from a world religion's perspective, then you know that what's distinct about the Jewish and Christian faith, the, 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 the Christian Bible, is the fact that there is one God. There is one God. One God. It's not multiple gods. You know, in Hinduism, I don't even know if they have a number. There are multiple gods, goddesses, deities of every kind, every flavor. They have so many deities, understand? But this is what makes Christianity and Judaism unique. The Old Testament, the New Testament proclaim there is one God. Monotheism, one God. One God. Willie Ray would say he's God all by himself. Understand? There aren't other gods. It's not that you have God and then little gods, or any little gods. It's not that you have God and then you have Mother Earth, the goddess. Are you, are you kidding me? The Earth is a planet that God created. In the beginning, God, all by himself, he created the heavens and the earth. So the Earth is created just like everything else. You have God and you have creation. He is God all by himself. There are not other gods. So explain the first commandment to me. Does this suggest that there are other options? Like, is there any other God you could turn to? Like, all those Hindu gods and goddesses, is that what God is saying? Like, like are, are they actually options? I thought there was only one God. There is only one God. There is only one God. So if you're going to find another God to worship, you only got one option. You're going to have to make one. You're going to have to make one. Because there is no other God. He's God all by himself. So the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you must not have any other God but me, is often put together with the second commandment, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. An idol of any kind. 
Now, those verses, verses four, five, six, all together, it's a long, long section that describes the way they made idols. I mean, because the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, I mean, Egypt had themselves some gods. They had all kinds of gods. I mean, they, they, you know, they worship all kinds of animals. I mean, you go into one of the Pharaoh's tombs and see all of the strange religious idols that were a part of Egyptian worship. So, so the people coming out of Egypt, they, they knew about multiple gods. They knew about idols. And, and back in that day, I mean, they just made idols. It kind of blows our mind. How could you actually worship something that you made? Like, you can't even make like a, like, if I gave you a can of Play-Doh and said, make me something that looks like a dog, you couldn't even do that. The only thing you can make out of Play-Doh, tell me the truth, is a snake. You can make a snake because you just, you know, roll it out into a long tube and then you got a snake. I mean, so I don't really understand how any of us could think that we would worship something we make. But we have proven as a human race that we just love to make other gods. We love it. Our heart is an idol-making factory. We just can't stop. I remind you, there's only one God. There are no other options. And honestly, I know you people, you don't really like make idols. You're not going to go get wood and carve out something and put it up in your house and make sacrifices to worship it like God. You're not going to do that. I know you're not going to do that. I know you're not going to go buy yourself a little golden Buddha or something and sit back and, and I know you're not going to do that. I also know that these first two commandments are the ones we are most likely to break first. Because there's something about us as sinners, y'all. We, we turn away from God. We turn away from the only God there is, but we're still created for worship. We are wired to worship. In other words, God is the Lord our God. It is God who is ultimate. God who is put in the place of priority over everything in the universe, everything in heaven and earth and under the earth. I mean, God is above it all. He is the name above all names, the greatest, the holiest. He is God all by himself. But we turn from him. And we're still wired somehow to worship something. We're still wired to put something in that place, to put something in, in the place of first priority, to make something most important. You understand what I'm saying? We want something to be ultimate in our lives. We can't turn that off. So if it's not God, it's going to be something. You're going to put something back in that empty place where God is supposed to occupy that place of priority in your life. Y'all want to talk about that? Because, again, we're good at that. We're good at it. It gets awkward, though, when we talk about it because, man, you start talking about people's gods and they get a little, mm, you know, they, people don't like it when you talk about their gods. So let's just start. Um, I would say in the United States, especially in church culture, we are most likely to idolize family. There I said it. <laughs> we will idolize family. And you're saying, Pastor Tim, I love my family. I love my family. What's wrong with loving your family? I love my kids. I die for my kids. I love my kids. I love my mama. My mama's a saint. Pastor Tim, stop talking about my mom. You know, I know how you are. Yeah. We all love our families, but we idolize family. We idolize our family to such a point where we make family ultimate. Like, I remind you, God is ultimate and only God is ultimate. 
Only God is highest. Only God is greatest. Only God deserves your first and primary allegiance. But you want to give that to your family because you love them so much. You just love your grandchildren. And I brought them up. Now you want to show me pictures. I mean, you know, we idolize family. Often in marriage, we idolize children. Like, I know you love your kids. I love my son. I, I would die for my son. But I cannot put my son in the ultimate place of priority in my life. That place belongs to God. I can tell you right now what's wrong with most of your marriages if you have children. You know why your marriage struggles? Because you have a child-centered marriage. You two have idolized this little booger. You've idolized this child. That child is everything. So now, I mean, that child is what you both live for. You don't really have a marriage anymore. It's all about the children. And that's why when that precious baby graduates high school, you're going to look at each other and you're going to get a divorce. Because you got nothing if you can't both sit around and worship that baby. You know what I'm saying? I mean, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. We got men in this room probably that are sleeping in a Star Wars bed every night because at some point years ago, your kid moved into the bed with your wife and now you're sleeping in the kid's bed and you've been doing this for years. Okay, dude, that's weird. You waited your whole life to sleep in a bed with a warm woman. That's how you got the kid in the first place. But now you're sleeping in the Star Wars bed. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you is you have put something now in this place of ultimacy. That the children are everything to you. Oh my goodness, it's not just our kids. I mean, I mean it's just the way we are. We, we make family the idol. Your family's not your idol. Family's wonderful, family's important, but I'm telling you, 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 you cannot put family in the ultimate place. You cannot put family at the center of your life. Man, it's not just family. I'm, like back in my youth ministry days, I'd have kids coming to church like every Wednesday night. We met on Wednesday night, kids every single Wednesday night. And then at some point, I'd have a kid disappear. So I'd call them up, you know, hey, dude, where have you been? It's like, well, my dad made me get a job. My dad wants me to get a job. My dad wants me to learn to work. Wants me to have my own money. I'm like, man, I think working money is kind of important. Why, why are you working on Wednesday? Well, you know, I, want, I, I don't want to work on Friday, you know, because he wants his Friday night. And, you know, and so you just sort of look at it. And uh, just interesting how quickly parents would yank their kids out of church so they learn to work and make money. And, and I get it. And I'm not saying that church equals God. I'm not saying that either. But I just want to have you... Take a moment and look at your priorities. Because here's a kid that's going to learn to work and make money. And then almost without fail, give it two years, three years, that same parent will call me and say, Pastor Tim, I need you to help me with my son. You know, and there's a part of me, I will always help you with your son, but there's a part of me that thinks, you know, I've been trying to help your son every Wednesday night for the last five years. You know, when you took him out in order to learn to work and make money. Uh, you know what happens here? I mean, the way the parents idolize work and money, they want to pass that down into the generations. And I think in the idol chapter here, it talks about that, does it not? It talks about it right there. That, that somehow that's generational. I mean, the kids learn worship from their parents, and they learn to worship the very same idols the parents worship. You know, so your daughter right now thinks that, you know, heaven must be a good place, but Hobby Lobby's better. 
You know, because every time the car rolls, mama's driving to Hobby Lobby. I mean, we act as if, you know, Hobby Lobby is, is like the, the greatest place on earth. And all we're doing is continue to buy and buy and buy. I mean, you understand? We make idols of our homes. We make idols of just anything we can buy. We love to buy stuff. I promise you, you don't need another sign in your house that says live, laugh, love. I mean, if you need that reminder to live, live, girl, just live. I mean, it's just amazing, and I'm not making jokes. You understand what I'm saying? This is how we are. If you want to talk about the, the idol in your life, just ask yourself, what is it in your life that you sacrifice for? Because worship is always about sacrifice, right? Worship is about sacrifice. So what is it in your life you sacrifice everything else for? we got grown men. we got 35-year-old men in our culture now who play video games nearly round the clock. They can't work. They can't hold together relationships. They're still living in mama's basement often. Or God forbid, they actually get married. And then they totally ignore their wife because the dude cannot detach from the joystick. There's something wrong. Something wrong with you. Something wrong if you are that committed. If you're willing to sacrifice everything to play one more round of Call of Duty. There's something wrong. And it's not just video games. Some of you, the, the idol in your life is just television. You just love to watch television. It's all you do. It's all you do. I mean, and you're the kind of person you binge watch, which means when you sit down, you ain't getting up. You know, it's going to take like a tornado to blow the roof off of your house. And if it doesn't disturb your Diet Coke, you may still sit there and finish that episode of New Girl. I, I mean, am I telling the truth? I mean, like, like, you go on Facebook like, I've run out of things to watch on Netflix. What can I watch next? You've run out of things to watch. It is an infinity loop of garbage. If you've watched your way in one into Netflix and out the other, oh my goodness. What are you doing with your life? You can't make watching television ultimate. There is not a single thing on Game Show Network that can satisfy your soul. You understand? There's not a single thing, and nobody, none of your Facebook friends can tell you something to watch that's going to satisfy that boredom in you. It comes from someplace else. Your problems are not your problem. You see what I'm saying? The problem is there can only be one top priority in your life, and it must be the Lord. It must be the Lord. He's the only, only, only one that can take that top position. You cannot put your family in his place. You cannot put entertainment in his place. You can't make work and making money in his place. You can't put essential oils in his place. I mean, you cannot, you simply cannot put anything else in his place. So all those people say, Pastor Tim, I'm just, you know, I'm living by the Ten Commandments. No, you're not. You can't get past commandment one. You can't get past commandment one. Let's jump to commandment three, and, and I'm going to wrap up quickly. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, from the King James. Uh, when I grew up with this one, this was the verse that everybody used, like my grandma used, to, to, to make me not cuss, Right? Like this was somehow about cussing, which was always kind of a mystery to me because this is very specific. 
You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And there are just so many cuss words. I mean, you know, like I'm, I don't expect that y'all know any because you're good Baptists. Um, my wife's Episcopalian, so I've heard more perhaps than y'all have. Um, just kidding. Um, no, as a kid, I would think, how is this about cussing? You know, because, you know, there's so many words you could actually say, like when you slam your finger in the cabinet door. It may not be the name of the Lord, so how is it? And, and all I want to say is, if, if you boil this verse down to just like a verse about cussing, you're missing the point of what this verse is actually intending to forbid and also to, to direct you toward. What does it mean? You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Qu quickly, let me try to describe it to you. Again, the King James says, um, you must not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Hebrew word there is, is literally the verb for carry. So understand, it's not just like that you might speak his name in a way that's unworthy. It has more to do with the way you carry his name. You see the difference? It's not just speech. It is speech. But it's more than that. It's not just the way the Lord's name comes out of your mouth. It's the way the Lord's name comes out of your life. It's the way you carry his name. You take the name of Jesus with you, right? And so in all of the ways, in all of the places where you take his name. Now that can be directly related to your speech. You know, all of you. All of you who walk around all the time, you know, saying, you know, oh, Jesus, or oh my God. You know, uh, understand, you are directly, directly uh, doing exactly what this verse condemns. You must not use his name in any way that is not reverent, that is not worshipful. You must not do that. The scripture says, the Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. So all of those OMGs, cut it out. Understand? You get his holy name out of your filthy mouth. You do not use his name that way. But it's more than that. I think that a lot of us as religious people misuse his name in prayer because we pray in Jesus' name, right? But then we pray in ways that are just so selfish. We pray for things we shouldn't even ask for. We pray in ways that do not glorify his name. And this is what I'm trying to tell you. It's not just something about the way you speak. It really has to do with the whole way you carry his name. Make sense? So what I'm saying is, in these verse, first three commands, when you know what comes first... Everything else finds its place. But when you know what comes first, everything else finds its place. So 20-something years ago, we were sitting across the street in a little white church that was over 100 years old and that we knew we needed to build. And so we looked up from across at this hill that you're sitting on, and we decided the Lord wants us to build a church, a new church. So we were trying to decide, what's it going to look like? It's not going to look like the old church. It's just not. But what's the new church going to look like? And we had no idea. No idea. At first, we had nothing except one thing. We had one thing that we knew was going to be in this building. You know what it was? That window. That window. That window. Everything else on the other side of the church, honestly, was mostly just old and used up. Not even worth carrying across the street. But that window is important. It comes from 1897. It's Kokomo Glass. It's a gorgeous work of art. It's older than anybody even back then which means all the weddings, all the baptisms, all the worship services that have happened in front of that window, it just mattered to the church, right? So we said, we don't know what that building's gonna be, but we're, but we're taking the window. Now, it's interesting, because once you have one thing like that that you know is non-negotiable, everything else will kind of work itself out. So the next question, well, how high is the ceiling gonna be in that new sanctuary? Well, it's gonna be high enough to fit that window. Understand? I mean, look at it, y'all. 
you don't have to be smart. That window is that window. It is as tall as it is. So we went a little bit higher at the top and a little bit lower at the bottom, and we found how high the wall is going to be. Understand? It's easy. When you got the first thing in its place, everything else finds its place. Next question, well, will there be other windows? What will the other windows look like? Well, the other windows are going to have a point at the top just like that window right there. Understand? Every other window in this building is going to have a pointed window just like that because it's got to match this window. Right? Yeah, I'm telling you, that's how we did the whole church. So then the big question, what color is the carpet going to be? What's well, going to be a color that matches a window and probably not yellow? You know, so blue. You understand what I'm saying? When you know what comes first, everything else finds its place. Do you want to know why your life is so chaotic? Do you want to know why you're always so bored, never satisfied, never pleased? Do you want to know why your marriage is struggling? You want to know why you struggle with your teenagers? Do you want to know why you live so anxious, so afraid, so constantly guilty and ashamed? Do you want to know why your life is as it is? I'm telling you, your problems are not your problem. Your problem is that you do not yet have what comes first in first place. And in your life, God comes first. God comes first. God is not going to be one priority among other priorities. God's not going to be, you know, the priority that you can, you know, trim or eliminate. You know, it's, it's like if it's travel ball season, then the family doesn't have to go to church ever at, at all. You understand? God's not going to play that game with you. It's not just going to like stand on the side and kind of let you fit him in between the cracks of all of the other things in life that you make so important. It's not how this works. When you know what comes first, everything else finds its place. And if God comes first, everything else works around him. Everything fits around him. So if you have commitments or conflicts that in any way you know, cause interference with your commitment to God, guess what? The commitment to God does not bend. That's not where you decide to find some extra time you know, or clear your schedule. It's not how any of this works. And if you think you can make it work, I'd just like to suggest that you look closely at your life because probably one of the reasons things are so crazy for you is that you don't have the first thing in first place. So that's why when people say, I just live by the Ten Commandments, I don't really say it, but I'm thinking, no, you don't. Most of us can't get past commandment number one. When God wants to give the Ten Commandments, how does he begin? I am the Lord your God. You must have no other God but me. Put him first. Put him first. Pray with me. God, it is easier in church it's easier, Lord, to think about how we want to put you first. Sitting in this worship service, Lord, where everything is completely planned and engineered to keep the focus on you, Lord, we find it easier to focus on you. And, and, and in this pew, Lord, in this moment, we can see things pretty clearly. We realize, Lord, that our lives are out of balance, that our priorities are upside down, Lord. We confess that we have not made you first. We realize, Lord, that we sacrifice way too much for the sake of a job that does not in any way give back. 
We recognize, Lord, that we sacrifice so much for the sake of money so that we can buy things that we do not need and will very, very quickly sell in a yard sale or just throw away, Lord. We invest so much of our lives for what is literal garbage. Sacrifice hours and hours, Lord, in front of games or television, Lord, making ourselves feel that our lives are so busy, so busy, so busy. We do so little of importance. In this house, Lord, we can see it more clearly. We can imagine the changes that we want to make. We can imagine the conversation we like to have with you when the service is over. We can think about the talk we want to have with our wife, with our husband. We can imagine, Lord, the changes we like to make in our kids' schedule. We can imagine all of this, Lord. It's easy in here. It's hard when we go home. Our habits are hard to break, Lord. They may not be good habits, they may not be smart habits, Lord, but it is the rut in which our life has fallen, and Lord, we don't always even know where to begin to change. We could change our marriage, or we could imagine changing our kids' schedule, Lord, but we don't even want to think about the hassle. So nothing changes. Lord Jesus, I pray that today that you would move our hearts in such a way where we would long to make you first to set you apart in our hearts as Lord of everything, Lord, and we would once more surrender to your authority to command our lives. We would make you, Lord, most important, ultimate above all. Forgive us, Lord, for asking you to overlook the affection we have for uh, the little gods we make. Give us mercy, Lord, and the ability to uh, somehow love and worship and adore only you. God, this is harder than any of us can imagine even doing. We're going to need you, Lord Jesus, your grace, your mercy, your salvation, the power you give by the Spirit, Lord. If anything's going to change in us, Jesus, you're the only one who can change it. So we offer ourselves to you today, Lord Jesus, to change us, change everything so that we can make you first. Pray these things in your precious name. Amen.